This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Fidelity, financial planning that moves with your life. Learn more at fidelity.com slash your goals. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSC SIPC. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, October 11th. Today, why a suburb with a long history of good intentions is still failing its Black students. And how Jane Fonda is trying to atone for older generations. So let's start with your name and your title. I'm Laura Meckler. I'm national education writer for The Washington Post. Can you describe to me what Shaker Heights, Ohio is like? Shaker Heights is a suburb. It's just east of Cleveland. It's a beautiful place. They have um, beautiful homes and excellent schools. And it's sort of how people viewed the ideal of a suburb, especially as suburbs were being developed in the 50s in this country. For a long time, it had a reputation for being quite wealthy. There are some houses in Shaker that are true mansions. There also are more modest homes, more of middle-class neighborhoods. And that's where I grew up. I grew up in Shaker Heights and lived there for my whole childhood. You find people there who have really progressive attitudes, um, want to try to make their community as good as it can be. And what is Shaker Heights' history with integration? Shaker Heights has a fascinating history with integration. The children of Shaker Heights have the advantage of a forward-looking school program. And it's really part of the whole way Shaker has always viewed itself. Shaker has been willing to experiment with promising new ideas in education. It's something I don't ever remember not knowing about, which is that when, you know, it used to be an all-white community, and then the first black family started moving in in the 1950s, which happened in a lot of places. But Whereas in many places, that quickly led to white flight, where neighborhoods just turned over in a matter of a few years. What happened in Shaker is that some really committed people who lived in the first neighborhood, which is called Ludlow, decided that rather than having just selling and panicking and leaving, they wanted to preserve their community, and they wanted to preserve it as an integrated community. And they formed a community association, and the purpose of that association was to encourage white people to stay even as black people were moving in, and they did a lot of things to try to make that happen. Then in 1970 was a really important time in Shaker Heights, which is that the schools integrated themselves. There was still an imbalance in the elementary schools in terms of certain schools being overwhelmingly African-American and others overwhelmingly white, and they created a voluntary busing system which integrated the schools, and that made Shaker a real national leader when it came to integration. Other places were fighting integration and going to court to stop it. In Shaker, they were voluntarily creating their own program. So if that was all happening in the 50s and 60s, why did you decide that you wanted to go back now to talk about integration in Shaker Heights? So I grew up knowing all about this history, and it was always a point of pride for me being from Shaker Heights, largely because of this history. But then, you know, as the years went on, I started hearing more and more about something that I had noticed myself in high school, which was this achievement gap. It doesn't really matter what 
particular metric you want to focus on, you see these really big achievement gaps of kindergartens, third grade, sixth grade. Here's one from ninth grade, the percent of ninth graders who were scoring proficient or higher on their English assessments at the end of the year. About half of black kids, 95% of white kids. And you can see the gap in AP classes just by looking at these numbers too. You know, there are 82% of white students in the 11th grade last year took at least one AP class. Among black students, it was 45%. It's reflected at every grade level from kindergarten, third grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, whatever you look at, you will see these gaps. So I was interested in why this was. Why is it that in a community that really cares about these issues, that's trying hard, that wants diversity, embraces diversity, why are there still such profound achievement gaps between white and black students? So I was interested in going back to Shaker Heights, not as someone who grew up there, not as someone whose parents lived there, but as a reporter to see what's going on there, what's happening, and why are they not able to essentially tackle this problem? So tell me what that reporting process was like. You just, like, went back to your old high school and started talking to people there? Some of that. I talked to close to 100 people before I was done, and I tried to get all perspectives. Tell me where you feel things are right now. Only two years ago, we had the you know, equity task force what's, what's So I talked to people who, teachers and administrators and students at the high school today to get their take on it from a, you know, in a conversation that was different than the one I might have had when I was in school. So you talked to one student named Olivia McDowell. Tell me about her story. Um, so I'm a reporter for the Washington Post, as you know. Okay. Tell me, like, where have you gone to Shaker Schools your whole your whole life? Where were you born? Just tell me your okay. story. So I was born here in Cleveland. Um, and Olivia McDowell is a senior at Shaker High School. Last year she was a junior, and she was in AP English class. She was one of a handful of black kids in her AP English class. So, like, I love writing. Um, I actually, like, want to be a writer. So that's why I decided to go for AP IB English. And... There was a day last September that turned out to be really important for both her and for the district. Yeah, it was it was going fine until one day we had to do an essay. She found herself falling behind at the beginning of class. She didn't have an assignment. The teacher spoke to her about it in a way that was really embarrassing to her. She felt like other kids could hear the conversation. Other students also, they also didn't have theirs finished. So that's also what I noticed. And she didn't really say anything to them. But when it came down to me... Um, the person sitting next to me even told me, like, she put in headphones because she didn't want to hear the conversation because it sounded like it was getting kind of personal. That ended up um, becoming a big controversy over the course of last year in terms of how the teacher handled it, how the district handled it. And, you know, one thing that was really striking to me was that I um, was able to watch a video of this meeting. I wasn't there, but last November there was a community meeting. Uh, a question here, a general, a kind of a general question. I'm gonna, uh, and it was actually called about something else, but... No one wanted to talk about that other thing. Everyone really wanted to talk about this controversy that was brewing about the teacher and whether she had been treated fairly by the district in regards to the situation with Olivia. There's a lot of work that we need to do as a community in order to make sure that we provide an equitable and high-quality educational experience for all students. So Olivia's sitting in the auditorium while there's all this swirling around her, and she's just 
Her leg is shaking. She wants to get up. Her mom had told her, don't you get up on that stage, whatever you do. But she just could not hold back. And she just escaped from her seat, walked up onto the stage. Keep in mind, no one was walking onto the stage. You know, this was not an open forum. And she just walked up, took the microphone from the principal's hand and said, you know, I'm the, I'm the girl you guys are talking about. And, you know, you're all worried about the teacher. And in fact, a lot of the teachers who were assembled were worried about the teacher because she had been disciplined um, in a questionable way. Why is it about the teacher's feelings? What about the students? Y'all say y'all care about it so much. What about the damage to a student when they're, what, one of three, one of five black kids in their class? They're being reprimanded over stuff that's not, they haven't been in the class. They're completing stuff at the level that they need to, but somehow they're still wrong, right? Somehow they're still not capable. This is really hard. It's really hard to be one of only a few black kids in an AP class. And you need to keep that in mind. And did you hear that from other students? This idea that they just didn't feel supported in trying to take AP classes and, and that they just felt kind of alone? Yeah, I heard a mix of reactions. I talked to some black kids, really high-achieving kids who just, you know, you get the sense these are the kids who can do anything. This is like we're looking at the next, you know, senator from Ohio. And then you look at other kids who very much feel like they're are sort of falling through the cracks. I was sitting in one class just listening. It was a conversation, an English class about a memoir written by an Iranian woman. And the small group discussion was asked to talk about challenges in society and how does that relate to our lives. And suddenly this one girl just brought up, said, you know, it's just like what we have in Shaker with this divide, with not a lot of black kids taking AP classes. And she just starts talking about this. And she was a black girl talking about this from her own personal experience. So I followed her out of that class and wanted to hear more from her about, you know, what her experience was. So what are you in? I'm in honors, but yeah. Did you think about AP? I did, and so I was in AP for literally one day. And she was in honors English, and she said she had tried AP English, but she hadn't lasted more than a day. She just went for a day, and then she decided to drop back down. I just felt really kind of uncomfortable being like one of three or four minorities. And it kind of just felt like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here. That's kind of what it just felt like for me. So what? So you went for one day? Yes. And, and did you tell who did you tell you wanted to switch? I told my counselor. I said I I really want to switch out of here. And I didn't tell her it was because the lack of diversity, but that was my did main you, issue. Did she ask you why? No. She said I want to switch and she didn't say why do you want to switch? Mm-mm. The reason I ask is cuz the school is supposedly trying to encourage more black students to take AP. Maybe they are. It hasn't happened to me. And she dropped out before she could even, like, take a test or turn in an assignment or have anyone even have the opportunity to tell her, like, maybe you're not prepared for this class. 
She did. And I think one of the things that Shaker is realizing is that when they have a kid like this, and I'm telling you, this was like a smart, bright kid. Her contributions that I saw that day were fantastic. She just really seemed on top of it. You know, they need to find a way to make sure these kids don't slip through the cracks. And that's essentially, I think, what happened with her. Now, she's in honors, and there's nothing wrong with being in honors. But with a little push, could she have made it into AP? You know, maybe so. So then it seems that there's like this real conflict here between the impression that Shaker Heights has of itself as this bastion of diversity and a place that's really taking active strides towards trying to encourage integration and the things that people say happen that may not be explicit racism all the time, but that are still affecting the way that non-white people are able to succeed in this community. Yeah, I think that's something Shaker's struggling with. The person who's in charge of data for the district put it to me this way. He said, anytime you look at our numbers by race, we look like two different districts. And I think part of that is driven by the fact that there is a big economic racial wealth gap. So the white people who live in Shaker are far wealthier and have far more education themselves than most of the African-American families who live in Shaker. Obviously not all of them, but I'm talking about averages here. So as is true everywhere— When you have kids from families with single parents, parents who don't have as much time in the day, perhaps, to spend with their kids, kids who didn't have as strong of a preschool program, all of the things that hold kids back is sort of falling disproportionately on African-American students. So they're coming in less prepared. And then quickly what happens is that there's a lot of tracking at Shaker, a lot of leveling. So kids get pulled out for enrichment courses. As young as fourth grade, kids are being pulled into enrichment, and that accelerates as the kids get older. That once you put a a kid, even if they're in in elementary school, once you put a kid in some kind of gifted program, then they are kind of on a track to take more advanced programs throughout their whole education, and that kids who don't have opportunities to take those classes earlier on end up being in lower-tier classes or not AP classes or stuff like that. Exactly. It starts out right from the beginning. And the way that those um, enrichment programs are created, the way they decided who would go to enrichment was they did it through a test. And the test scores, there was a racial gap in what the results were from the test scores. There were also teacher recommendations, and there may be some implicit bias on the part of teachers there, too. And there was another factor, too, which is that there was sort of this unstated system where if a parent wanted their kid to be in the advanced class— in honors or in AP or in enrichment, whatever it might have been at that level, they could go and ask for it. And if a parent asked for it, they could get it. But this was sort of an unspoken thing, and you had to know that you could ask. So that's one of the factors. And I think it's something they've taken on in recent years. There was a superintendent who made equity the centerpiece of his administration, began an equity task force. They now have an equity policy. They do implicit bias training for new instructional staff. So they haven't solved these problems, but they haven't given up. So then what is the solution? And is there any hope for the near-term future that the gravity of this achievement gap is going to start to lessen? I think that they are going to make some improvements, at least on the margins. You know, I don't know if it will close the achievement gap, and I don't know if anybody has succeeded in closing the achievement gap, especially when you have such a large economic gap that goes with the racial achievement gap. 
But some of the things they're doing, I think, have the potential to get at it. But, you know, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of work. This is a place that isn't exactly what I thought it was growing up. It's a lot more complicated. It's a lot harder. A lot of people were not having and are not having the same, you know, completely positive academic experience that I did. And, you know, no doubt because I'm white. And um, while lots of black kids are having great experiences, you know, unfortunately, too many aren't. And I came away from reporting the story feeling like, you know, Shaker is not the place that I thought it was growing up. It's not some place that has race figured out. You know, maybe nowhere has race figured out, but they don't have it figured out. That's for sure. But while it was depressing in one sense, it's like these are people who have been trying for 50 years to deal with these issues, and they still have this huge achievement gap. Why haven't they made more progress? Like, you want to, like, you know, you want to grab someone around the throat and say, why hasn't this worked? You, you guys care. Why hasn't this, why haven't you had more success? So it was frustrating in that respect. But, yeah, they haven't figured it out. This isn't done. But they're still trying. They still care. That place is full of people who care. Black people, white people who are trying and who want to make this better. And they don't all agree of exactly the best way to do it. But I think this is still a place that's trying. Laura Meckler is a national education reporter for The Post. You can find a link to Laura's story on Shaker Heights, Ohio, along with photos and videos, at postreports.com. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity Personalized Planning and Advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. So tell me... Where do we know Jane Fonda from? Well, we know her most recently from her television series, Grace and Frankie. So we didn't have the romance of the century, but I thought we were normal. I thought we were like everybody else. I thought this was life. She's had an incredible movie career. She has two Academy Awards. She has seven Golden Globes. She's deservedly famous actress. And don't forget that she's like an aerobics mogul, that she had this whole series of aerobics videos that came out in the 80s. Are you ready to do the workout? She made these phenomenally successful videos about about aerobic exercise. My mom used to watch this. Along with millions and millions of other people. Okay, to the right, back, left, really stretch it out. And now she's planning to bring her act to the steps of the Capitol in a bit of political theater, I guess you could call it, but also a way to focus attention on the climate issue. This is Stephen Muffson. He writes about climate change for The Post. And a few weeks ago, he got a call from someone representing Jane Fonda. And he said Jane Fonda wanted to come and talk to us about climate change. And I said, sure. And so she came (laughs) in. You can't turn down an interview with Jane Fonda. No, definitely not. So... 
Would you like me to tell you what I'm doing? Yes. And why? She's become more interested in climate change. She's already been some demonstrations about this in Seattle and Vancouver. But now she read this piece of Naomi Klein's book, which describes a sort of bit of a profile and essay about Greta Thunberg. And so she was studying climate change. And when she realized what was happening and that this was barreling at us like an engine, and she looked around and people weren't behaving appropriately, it so traumatized her that she stopped speaking and eating. And when I read that, it rocked me because I knew that Greta had seen the truth. And, and I thought, it's just the urgency came into my DNA the way it hadn't before. So she said that helped inspire her to want to do something herself. So what is she going to be doing? She put her little tiny body on the line in front of the Swedish parliament. Okay, I'm going to take my body, which is kind of famous and popular right now because of the series, and I'm going to go to D.C., and I'm going to have a rally every Friday, like Retta, and it'll be called Fire Drill Friday, and, and we're going to engage in civil disobedience. We're going to get arrested every Friday. But we need to drill deep, so every night before, every Thursday night, at the office of Greenpeace at 7 o'clock at night, we're going to have a digital live stream um, teach-in. This is an important feature, I guess, of her plan, is to have an online discussion about some of the issues of climate change and not just make this uh, a shouting match, but to turn it into a sort of an educational opportunity as well. Because we have to understand more about the military and climate change, how climate change especially affects women, it's really interesting, and the Green New Deal and what go into detail about the Green New Deal and oceans and forests and fresh water and, and my, mass migration and health and all these different issues. There are going to be 14 Fridays, um, and, and then we take questions from the audience. And she's just going to get arrested? Like, that's her plan? That's the plan. Apparently, uh, it's not as difficult as you think to get arrested in front of the Capitol. What, what is she going to do that will get herself arrested? She's going to walk on the steps. She's going to be carrying placards with, long, with at least a handful of other people. And I believe the Capitol Police have done this a few times. They ask you to leave. And if you don't leave after the third time, they can arrest you. And what does she think that she will achieve by getting arrested on the steps of the Capitol every Friday for 14 weeks? Well, I think she's hoping to do a lot of the same things that students have done in their kind of more vigorous protests around the world, which is to draw attention to climate change, to try to uh, push Congress into doing something um, at a time when Congress hasn't really done much of anything on the climate front. And the Trump administration has pulled back from the Paris Climate Accord of 2015 and said it was going to withdraw from that. And she actually has this whole long history of being an activist on other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she was an, uh, very supportive of the Black Panthers. And she was also very involved in anti-war protests in the late 60s and early 70s. At one point, she went to North Vietnam and the North Vietnamese took her to an anti-aircraft battery. The photographs of her then uh, became a major issue. She was nicknamed Hanoi Jane. And uh, she later apologized 
and said that she did not intend to cause any pain for veterans. She later made a movie coming home about the pain that veterans have as they came back from Vietnam. You know, one thing that we've seen is that a lot of climate activism, especially of late, has really come from young people, like super young people, like people in middle school and high school. And so it's interesting that Jane Fonda, who I believe is in her 80s, that she wants to take a big stand on this. Yeah, she expects to turn 82 on the steps of the Capitol in December uh, while getting arrested. So that's interesting. I mean, Greta Thunberg, part of her whole argument is that the older generation has failed. So in a way, it's it's useful to think of Jane Fonda as the Greta Thunberg of the octogenarian set. She's someone who can try to do something um, after so many years of of that generation not doing doing much of of anything in the way to to curb climate change. I think what's interesting about her history of activism is that, in some ways, I think that people can sort of ungenerously look at it as Jane Fonda is kind of a dilettante for whatever the like cool issue of the day is. And I wonder if that's something that she's had to deal with in terms of trying to use her platform to bring attention to big things. Well, I think that she wants to use her fame as a platform. You can really be an effective activist when you have a hit TV series at your back. <laughs> Wasn't always that way. In addition to reading Naomi Klein's book, she's also read Joseph Stiglitz's book about the nature of capitalism here in the United States. Joe Stiglitz is a, a fairly left-wing, Nobel Prize-winning Columbia University economist. And so she's thought about things, and she's aware of knowledge that oil companies had 30 years ago about climate change and their failure to disclose things. And you know, she's, she's talking about all the important issues, I think. Steve Mustin writes about climate change for The Post. On Friday morning, Jane Fonda arrived at the U.S. Capitol and gave a speech to a group of protesters. It is too late for moderation. Too late for moderation. You see, if we had known what was happening 30 years ago, the transition could have been incremental, could have been moderate. But we were lied to, we were hoodwinked by the fossil fuel industry into believing that the earth was ours to endlessly exploit without consequence. Then Jane Fonda attempted to climb up the steps on the east side of the Capitol. She was arrested by U.S. Capitol Police and taken away in handcuffs. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Rennie Svernovsky, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also wrote our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. What's on your list of financial goals? Buying a new house? Strengthening your retirement plan? All of the above? 
Whatever you're saving for, Fidelity personalized planning and advice can help you reach those goals with digital planning plus one-on-one personal coaching, all with low transparent pricing. To learn more, visit fidelity.com slash your goals or call 1-800-343-3548. Advisory services offered for a fee by Fidelity Personal and Workplace Advisors, LLC, and brokerage services provided by Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC.